Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we talk to philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor John Christman. His book, The Politics of Persons, has just come out in paperback with Cambridge University Press. John Christman is Professor of Philosophy, Political Science, and Women's Studies at the Pennsylvania State University. Contemporary political philosophy is fundamentally concerned with justice, freedom, equality, and authority. In developing theories of such matters, political philosophers often rely upon distinctive, yet often tacit, conceptions of the self and individual autonomy. Familiar forms of liberal political theory are sometimes criticized for assuming an objectionably atomistic or disembodied view of selves. Traditional liberalism envisions self-interested and self-sufficient rational deliberators who enter into social relations only after performing very sophisticated calculations of the costs and benefits of doing so. According to a long-standing tradition of criticism, this image of the self is objectionably blind to the social nature of human subjectivity. On these views, selves are fundamentally relational. They emerge out of particular social and historical contexts. Accordingly, on these views, traits which traditional liberalism aspires to ignore or discount, traits such as gender, ethnicity, and physical ability, become central to political theory. Yet, as Christman argues in his book, opponents of liberalism have not yet managed to develop a viable political theory, an alternative to liberalism. And moreover, Christman thinks that there is a version of liberalism that can recognize the social, relational, and historical dimensions of selves. In The Politics of Persons, Christman develops and defends a kind of liberalism that places at its center a distinctive conception of individual autonomy rooted in a socio-historical conception of the self. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, John Chrisman. Um, hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks uh, for including me. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, so welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Um, my uh, my um, guest today is John Chrisman. He's the author of the book The Politics of Persons, which was published in paperback this year with Cambridge University Press. This book is centrally aimed at developing a conception of the self and a theory of individual autonomy that gives proper weight to the social and historical dimensions of human agency. Along the way, Chrisman addresses many of the central issues in moral and political theory. Um, So it's a very wide-ranging book. Uh, It's philosophically very rich. Um, So, John, why don't we begin, before we we get to talking about the meat of your book, with a little biographical information. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself or how you came to philosophy or how you came to develop this uh, longstanding, as I understand, interest in autonomy? Um, Yeah, sure. And uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me. This is a very interesting series you have, and you you conduct it very well. So thanks for including me. yeah, I, well, I come from. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans, uh, which in the last few years has become <laughs> a poignant fact about uh, me and uh, my family. But um, it, and w- went to school, went to 
college, finished at the University of New Orleans. Um, and the only thing interesting about that, besides the fact that New Orleans is, is and always has been a fascinating place, um, is that I, I've realized more and more how coming from there and going back there uh, quite often recently, um, it gives one a sense of, of history and a sense of a kind of um, the the weight of history on on the present and even sure. when when it suffers a certain rupture as it did uh, recently there, right. um, and but in terms of uh, training I. I uh, was a major in philosophy and English. I was I loved reading literature, and I. Um, but a place like the University of New Orleans, which is not known as a university uh, broadly, it is. It had a wonderful small philosophy department, and I had this great advantage of being, you know, a philosophy major, and also I worked in the office, so I got a lot of attention. And I don't know if it was the case with you, Bob, but uh, when I got to know professors, I, I got to know them as friends, and as I got to know what it's like to be a professor, and not just, you know, my head in philosophy uh, as a discipline, sure. but right. really got into, got to know the profession and realized that's, that's what I wanted to do. So um, then I went to graduate school in Chicago at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, and uh, did a dissertation. I studied with Jerry Dworkin, uh, hmm. though I didn't write on autonomy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he being famous for that, and uh, eventually very influential on for me. But uh, but I wrote on property and distributive justice. Right. And um, that uh, resulted in in a book. And uh, my, uh, my work over the years has always had these sort of two. Prongs. One concerning, you know, distributive justice and issues of uh, economic rights and economic justice, and uh, theories of autonomy and the self and, and freedom, and and often that overlaps. Um, but those those uh, have kind of leapfrogged each other in terms of prominence. Um, but then I uh, got a position at uh, Virginia Tech um, and was there for uh, eleven years or so, and then have moved to Penn State, where I am now, and have been now for. Goodness, thirteen years. So wow, time flies. <laughs> I know it's amazing. <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> I, I often wonder, you know, if there isn't um, something to be said just uh, as far as the the sort of sociology of the profession goes, mm -hmm. because like you, you know, I, I did my undergraduate philosophy major at a small uh, college mm -hmm. uh, in New Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, William Patterson, mm -hmm. and um, you know. Uh, I, there were maybe six or seven other philosophy majors at the time I was there, all of whom now are tenured uh, philosophy professors. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there is something about um, being introduced, at least uh, starting your philosophical education might be the better way to put it, mm -hmm. in, a, in, in, a, in a liberal arts smaller context that mm -hmm. might lend itself to uh, you know, a, a kind of um, introduction to the profession that um, you can't get in other – uh, and other kinds of institutions, but mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that the the, the business you were, you were talking about about your own uh, introduction into professional philosophy by getting to know your professors in a way that helped you to understand what um, you know what the what the life of a professor is like or what the mm -hmm. academic life is like. Um, I think that that's really uh, an interesting observation and very uh, a, a key, I'm sure, uh, point and uh, or element of the history of lots of uh, professional philosophers. Mm -hmm. um, so very interesting. Um, let's talk about the book. Okay. Um, so um, one thing I want to sort of commend you for is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the politics of persons is uh, uh, refreshingly ambitious uh, as a work of moral and political philosophy in a time where um, a lot of work is 
very tightly focused on a very specific, narrowly construed topic. A lot of the uh, the way typically things go is a lot of the work done in the book is sort of, you know, uh, holding off uh, related issues and trying to, you know, sort of narrow things down to some very particular P that you're uh, mm-hmm. trying to assert. Um, the politics of persons is different. That is that it's ambitious and that it takes on a lot of different sorts of philosophical concerns and tries to, you know, work its way through uh, um, a number of issues that uh, philosophers uh, tend to think should be kept separate. Mm-hmm. So I, I applaud that. I think that that was one of the the, the really en- engaging aspects of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, on well, great. Well, one point you're talking about. Uh, sort of psychological conceptions of the self and work in psychology. There's good discussions in there about issues in practical reasoning. Um, so you really bring a lot of stuff together. Identity politics and multiculturalism come up later in the book. Um, so there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. So uh, maybe a good way to begin would be just to ask you uh, to give us a statement about um, – how you see the main project of the book, how you see these different parts working together. Or is there a, mm-hmm. what, was there one element that you would call the central project of the book and the other things sort of are playing supporting roles? Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you give us sort of a discussion of the, uh, how you conceptualize uh, the overall ambi- you know, aim uh, of the politics of persons? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, thanks for those comments. Um, and uh, you're right that it takes a, a sort of expansive approach to these issues. Uh, but at the same time, I have great respect for the, the folks who, who pare issues down very carefully, and sure. I, I always hope I can say something careful about the big issues. Um, but the, the central theme of the book is to um, ask the question of what conception of the self or autonomy uh, it remains plausible when we take seriously the variety of critiques of the Enlightenment conception of the person that we inherit in uh, liberal political philosophy, where uh, that traditional conception has the person as a free, rational chooser, unencumbered by social position, uh, often completely divorced from his or her history, and just choose and who chooses her, his ends and values uh, as if from a menu, and often uh, and so over from a number of traditions and over uh, many years that understanding of the self in society has become controversial and problematic. And in many circles in the broader philosophical landscape, it's completely rejected and, and in some places ignored. Um, and so the, the central theme of the book is to, to ask, if we take seriously the critiques from all a number of directions of that model of the self, what conception of a an independent authentic agent in society with a history can we construct that would play a role in uh, a theory of politics in democratic theory and democratic society um, in the way that we think a, a theory of the person ought to ought to do um, and so in some ways it is uh, negotiating this middle way between a complete rejection of the enlightenment conception of the rational agent uh, and that emerges from a variety of, of places, and the uncritical um, 
holding on to that traditional understanding of the person. So, um, so it's a, it's a, an attempt. Uh, the, the central, you know, purpose theme of the book, and it's literally the center of the book, is um, is a theory of autonomy, right. uh, where I, you know, join many other voices here, not uh, the least of which is my former teacher, Jerry Dworkin, but many other people uh, who have been talking about that concept, and I fashion. Uh, in analytic style, a, a conception, and and have several conditions, and try to defend it against criticisms, but then have that as a linchpin be the um, what I want to build a broader conception of politics on the one hand, and and the self uh, from a psychological and social uh, point of view on the other. Um, so, so in some ways, the you know the the book is just about autonomy, but in other ways, it's about autonomy as it uh, can be reconstructed in this broader landscape of uh, social critique and, and political theory. Right. So, I, I want to ask you um, about the the actual details of the conception of autonomy. But first, um, just picking up on on on. Uh, some of what you just said um, there and in reading the book, sort of a question emerged for me mm-hmm. early in reading it um, that 's kind of methodological or, or we might say second order mm-hmm. um, because it seems uh, that and it seems that you 've just affirmed that you 've got a specific view about the relation between our conceptions of the self and our view of autonomy on the one hand and our overall political theory. That is, mm-hmm. I take it from reading the book that, that you see your task as at least in part that of devising a view of the autonomous self that would be comfortable or friendly uh, with a certain uh, kind of uh, political framework, you know, a certain roughly familiar kind of, uh, uh, again, modified but still roughly liberal political framework. Now, I take it that this is novel in that um, uh, theorists, especially people dealing with autonomy, uh, tend to read the politics off the theory of the autonomous self. That is, the, the task typically is to get autonomy right and then understand our politics as uh, – or political theory as something that's supposed to respect that or preserve it or enable it. Um, and so you do autonomy first and then the politics sort of trails uh, after it. You design the politics to suit it. But it seems to me that you're working with a, 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 a sort of bidirectional model here in that mm-hmm. you're, you're committed to a, a certain kind of political project um, and you're trying to fashion a conception of autonomy that would still be comfortable with that project and yet take on um, what you see as worth taking on. Uh, uh, from critics who might not share that political uh, framework. Does that seem right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, and I think with the motivation there um, is a, a certain unease with uh, a, kind, a, a way of doing moral philosophy that some people do extremely well, but I've never really fit myself into comfortably. And that is where we consider concepts like autonomy, something so uh, full of connotations and and uh, implications, and 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 try to analyze it as if it's a kind of uh, freestanding entity that we're trying to get the edges of, and and we test our intuitions, and we ask, well, is this plausible, and does this make sense? What about this example and this counterexample? And it occurred to me a long time ago that that process is. Um, kind of inert when we divorce it from the role that the concept is intended to play in in practical and political 
concept, uh, context, either theoretical or practical in policy, for example. And so I realized that we have to ask these questions about what does this word mean, autonomy, while at the same time asking what role does the definition of that word play in, in some broader project. And so the relationship between conceptual work and theory building, to me, was always a tight one. Now, you can't spell it out. You know, you always have to ask what, where the cart is and where the horse is. And uh, I never want to say I'm just going to define a conception of the self or autonomy that will serve this political purpose and I've, that I've already, you know, set out or um, cottoned on to. But at the same time, um, I just don't think we can ask ourselves in philosophical conversation, what is a self or what is an autonomous self? And then settle that question as if that has no context and that has no, uh, you know, we're not asking it from a particular historical and even geopolitical point of view. And then say, okay, now that's settled. Good. And what, what can we build on that? I just don't think that that works because there are too many disagreements in the, that kind of literature we just come to a dead end and you think, well, my intuitions are not fully laid out because I have to see what, what the implications of this is, are. And um, so I, I – and really, I'm, I'm not um, a Rawlsian in any uh, official sense, although I may be a kind of fellow traveler in many senses. Um, clearly, what I'm doing here is a kind of reflective equilibrium um, right. in that I, I want the – conceptual work on an idea like that to always be in conversation with the politics it'll support and the metaphysics and psychology it arises out of. But understanding that all of those nodes can give and take until we have a picture, the whole of which seems to make a certain sense and and can be plausible. Well, excellent. Um, And does this, um, I mean, I, I can see how your positive view, again, which is an attempt to take on board sociological or social and uh, historical aspects and of, of the self and of human agency, I could see how um, the the more standard methodology, get autonomy right, then figure out what the political world should look like, mm-hmm. wouldn't fit well with that, with, with, uh, with that positive conception of how things are. Because if, after all, social stuff and historical stuff figures into our best accounts of who and what we are and how we reason, mm-hmm. that it would seem that uh, mm-hmm. methodologically you'd have to, to pursue the line uh, uh, that you're pursuing uh, quite well. Um, but uh, does this also figure into these sort of methodological considerations, figure into uh, some of the thoughts that come up a little bit later in the book? I know I'm skipping ahead. Um, uh, about ideal versus non-ideal theorizing. So you've got a lot of interesting things to say there. Um, and I, I take it that uh, that this is a, a, another crucial sort of linchpin of your, of your philosophical methodology. So can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um, the, my um – attention to and an embrace of what's come to be called non-ideal theory had had really become more robust as I worked through the project uh, mm. in that um, I had always been skeptical of this method by which which I just we just talked about where we can somehow in some pristine way settle a, an issue on a concept or even what we ourselves are just thinking about self-concept and selves that that somehow can be settled um, always been skeptical of that but at the same time um in an increasing way sensitive to the way that conce- uh, theorizing about such things abstracted from the very real limitations that all of us face and some of us face to a 
tr- profound degree. Limitations in social life, limitations in self-knowledge, uh, limitations in the ability to, to find and pursue flourishing lives, and um, realize that that is the mark of what people have come to call non-ideal theory. And, and now, then, the, the sort of tightrope that one has to walk that I find very difficult. I'm not sure I always um, keep my balance between um, just merely describing our imperfect world as if we can capture that as easily as we can some ideal and taking seriously the imperfections while working out some normative models that can then aid in the critique of those very imperfections. And you'll notice even by the way I'm saying this, there's always the threat of circularity in non-ideal theory in that we say, let's talk about, this this will make it obvious, let's talk about the injustices of the world before we have a theory of justice. That's right. right. (laughs) So, but but as you're, you know, noting, um, the more I work through the project of trying to conceptualize cells and autonomy for the purpose of politics, I realized the way in which I was taking on board limitations and, and imperfections, not only in society, but in cells. So right. to give a quick example, and this was a result of kind of an exchange in the literature over time, and, and I benefited greatly from, from critics um, early on, where um, many models of the self in various areas of philosophy assume self-knowledge, right? Assume right. Tra- self-transparency. And you don't have to be a doctrinaire Freudian to think that that's implausible, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we, we, from the limits of rationality, uh, that would become very familiar to just the, um, the role of, of emotion and um, other kinds of aspects of our of our physical and mental lives uh, play in, in whatever self-conception we can construct at a time. And that's always an imperfect and prog- process that's a matter of struggle and a matter of kind of fits and starts. And, um, you know, to take another example, um, often in the, in the analytic literature on these issues, issues of the body never come up. Right. We never, it never sounds like we're embodied beings, where uh, much of the aspects of our physicality are, first of all, unchosen. Right. Right? We don't choose uh, how many feet we have yet, and quite markedly, how many feet we happen to have, and many people, through various reasons, don't have two feet, right. um, profoundly affect our life projects. Right? And so we're constantly adapting and reconstructing a self-concept in a framework, and in this example, a physical framework, but often also a social framework and others, that we cannot choose and always have to negotiate our way through. So if you think of it that way, then we're already in the realm of what we're now calling non-ideal theory. We, you know, the idea of a you know, freestanding, choosing rational agent becomes just untenable as a starting point. But then talking about this tightrope, to fall right. off the other side of it would be to say we're so hopeless, <laughs> we're so right. self-deluded that um, not only articulating our own self-understandings as persons, but also theorizing about this is all you know a kind of uh, fool's errand. Now right. I don't want to go. I don't want to accept that because then I think normativity falls through away as well, and so does critique, and so does uh, the project of political philosophy, and. Um, and so then the question is, how can we accept these sort of structural, I don't even want to call them limitations because they're ubiquitous, the right. uh, structural framing of our 
self-understandings and our social life and our politics, uh, while at the same time leaving room for you know, normative and theoretical uh, critique. Well, uh, again, w- well done. Um, uh, let's get to the actual heart of the, of the book. Um, so um, you promote a, a distinctive view of autonomy. Um, and what I th- regard as a, a highly philosophically nuanced view of the self, again, the, the tightrope metaphor that you mm-hmm. were just speaking about sort of pervades the book and that you're, you're, you're constantly trying to sort of um, uh, navigate uh, various kinds of, of, of conflicts between um, two poles that you think uh, are both uh, in a way unacceptable or excessive. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, much of the book then is, is devoted to this project of clearing a conceptual space for a view of the self and autonomy that, as you were just saying, resists the problematic features of what we, you were just calling the so-called things enlightenment or traditional or atomistic view mm-hmm. uh, of the self. Um, while also avoiding sort of excessively socialized or what you know we used to call communitarian uh, uh, alternatives. So, um, can you describe for us then, in, in a little bit more detail, um, uh, some of your dissatisfactions with these more traditionally liberal, uh, some would say atomistic views, mm-hmm. um, and your dissatisfactions with the more uh, what I take it you regard as excessively socialized or communitarian conceptions of the self, and then give us a description of your own uh, uh, positive thesis with respect to the nature of the self and the uh, the sort of socio-historical conception of autonomy that falls out of that conception. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, well, the, in terms of the traditional liberal conception, and I realize as I kind of describe this, it may be a caricature. It may be that no one, in fact held this, uh, though uh, we can argue about whether that's true. Um, But the the view I'm thinking of is uh, the conception of the self as primarily agent or or chooser, that uh, a being who, from a position divorced from ends and purposes, can choose values, ends, and purposes. And in doing so, uh, can abstract from uh, any contingent connections, either, as it were, uh, synchronically to other beings and, and social settings in, in one's current landscape, and from the past, from history, um, that the ideal chooser, and, and this is coming from a certain reading of Kant, but of course it's a very simplified reading, um, that the ideal chooser is one who can then consider not only the moral law as Kant insisted, but also just values that one has as a, an individual. From this uh, uh, unembedded position, and that um, similarly, the, if you think of that, again, very simplified vision, the interests that attach to such an agent will be a certain uh, order of interests. You know, the interest of independence and separation, and the interest in um, having a wide menu of choices from which to uh, make this, these commitments um, and, and the like. But if you then take more seriously the way in which we are always uh, embedded both currently and historically in unchosen frames of choice, frameworks of choice, then um, we have to complicate that vision. And then, you know, the order of interest that arise out of that conception of the person changes. Um, so for 
quick example. Uh, if one understands oneself and finds oneself in one's self-understanding as connected to these deeply important relationships, then a fundamental interest is not independence, but protection of those relationships, right? Ma- right. Maintenance right. of the relationships. Now, this is, this is commonplace for people who have been reading, you know, sort of the feminist critique of liberalism for a long time, but that's sure. very much influential to me. Um, and so the, then the uh, question is, um, what really is, if we, we want an understanding of autonomous agency that will play some normative role in social life, moral uh, theory, and political uh, politics, we have to look more deeply and in more detail uh, um, at the conception of selves that underlies that conception of autonomy. And so that's what we have to turn to. And then again, we have many. Uh, we have this sort of traditional understanding, which uh, of of the self as rational chooser, and that has to be um, complicated. Um, so that's that's the traditional notion. And right. now I should say, sort of historically and biographically, and in, in a way to explain these points, I started this project a long time ago in just engaging in the communitarian critique of liberalism. Right. And in that critique, this same ground was gone over, and um, where the, the, in Sandel's words, uh, you know, the unencumbered self was the central character in liberal political philosophy, and that was problematic for many of the reasons I'm saying now. Right. The response to that by famously people like Will Kimlicka and Joseph Ross and many other people, um, and Rawls himself in a very in a different way, the response is to say that um, l- the liberal self need not presuppose an unencumbered self. That, as Kimlicka put it, we can merely see um, each one of our ends as subject to revision in a piecemeal way. Right. One by one. Well, that, to me, uh, went a great deal toward um, uh, the movement away from the problematic view that I, that I was describing, but not far enough or not always in the right direction. Because, first of all, the ideal that's being held on to is an ideal of choice. And this is a subtle but crucial point, and I, I sometimes can't hold onto it correctly. Right. But, and that is the difference between the interest of a person who is not at all alienated or troubled by a connection that he or she has, the interest of that person, versus the interest of a person who is trying to decide on a value or a path and, and or is alienated from a particular position he or she's in and has to kind of make a change. The right. latter is sort of the assumption, uh, the background assumption against which we construct theories of agency in even the revised liberal idea. Right. We always want to say, and, and Kimlicka and others say something very much like this, the interest of subjecting all of our commitments to critical review is a primary interest in such an agent. Right. And that's the part that I don't want to hold on to in that form because it's just not an interest in all agents. The, and it's putting, we can put it this way. It is costly to subject your commitments to critical review in some cases. It is not, it, it's a troubling process. It is, even if, it, if you do it in a piecemeal way, I mean, if you think of a religious commitment, uh, in many religious traditions, it is a crisis of faith. 
right. to ask yourself, should I believe in God in this way or, you know, whatever your religious framework is. That's, that's not a, something you always want to do. It's not a fundamental interest. It's a crisis. And so I wanted to, and, I, and it, it might just be a variation on the revised liberal self, but I wanted to um, have an idea, um, construct a conception that didn't commit us to that primary interest in change and in, in critical reappraisal and in separation from any particular end, but have, a, as you were saying, a somewhat more nuanced view where in some cases the fundamental interest is continuing acceptance of a commitment or protecting a relationship or continuing on a path. Um, given one's sort of historical trajectory, and um, but still, but but so have a conception of the self and agency and autonomy that uh, was faithful to those interests that some of us have, and maybe all of us have some of the time. Right, and just to pick up on this, um, uh, I, I I do want you eventually to sort of lay out the the the, the conception of autonomy. But one of the, the what I, what I one of the what I thought were a real compelling. Uh, argument in the book uh, was the um, the way in which you try, uh, or I shouldn't say try, because it seems to me that you succeed. Uh, the way in which you argue that um, memory is crucial for even just sort of day to day practical reasoning uh, 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 activities, right? That we don't even have to talk about um, these deep crisis moments uh, in order to build into or to see that we must build into our conception of the self something a little bit uh, uh, um, more complex than even the revised Kimuka uh, conception where I think you're right that the Kimuka conception still holds on to the fundamental conception of the self. It just Mm -hmm. says that it can't for whatever reason, maybe they're just purely cognitive reasons, right? Can't revise or evaluate everything all at once. Maybe right. that's just an epistemic limitation. But the concept of the self remains the same in the in the the revised Kim look of you. I, I, I take it. And so what you're trying to argue, uh, and I think you, you argue compellingly, is that no, when we think even just about everyday matters of practical reasoning, making a plan for dinner uh, might not be the exact example that you give, but you give a, a sort of very home homegrown example. Yeah. You know, to make a plan of any kind, even if very sort of simple kind there is an aspect of memory and history that gets built in even if at only at the level that you have to remember what the first step of the plan is when you get to the mm-hmm. uh, to formulating the last step right. so it seems that uh, that's a very compelling uh, uh, aspect of the view so could mm-hmm. you fill in a little bit about that story about mm-hmm. the the role of memory and history yeah um, I'd be glad to because it does lead into the theory of autonomy and the way I, I want to formulate it yeah um, it it just jumped out at me at one point years ago that um, theories of practical reason and agency in the literature, in various literatures, in large part talked about agents as if they came into existence five minutes ago. And they have a menu of, of options, but also settled frames practical identities, right? And they're there. And never talked about what you were just describing um, that is so fundamental to, to activity. And that is the way in which as economists say, uh, choices are path dependent. Right. You know, where, how I got here means a, whole, uh, a tremendous amount in terms of what I'm, where I can go from here. Now, there are grand exceptions to that generalization. Michael Bratman, for example, in his planning theory of, uh, of agency is, is a notable one. And many others who talked about the commitment to um, 
already established practical trajectories uh, in, in a theory of agency. But um, the, what I wanted to do is look more carefully at not just the way in which uh, choices are path-dependent, but the way in which remembering plays a role. Because when I started looking at the psychology of memory, things got even more complicated in interesting ways because remembering, and here I'm being, of course, very simplified, but um, is, is not merely just a replaying of a film of one's past experiences, right? It's a re- itself a reconstruction of traces of um, uh, experience, but also framed by semantic and psychological structures. And at any given time, and here I'm talking about autobiographical narrative memory, we remember by reconstructing a plausible story that makes sense of the traces of sense experience that bear on us and also make a certain current sense. And so even remembering is not just picking up on some unreconstructed uh, morsel that we then use to go forward. It is itself a project of self-construction. So with that in mind, so, so memory is important, the past is important, memory of the past is important, and memory is an ongoing self-reconstruction. That's, that's sort of what I, I tried to establish in, in the chapter on memory and, and some other things, and uh, picking up on the work of many other people. And, and that leads into the theory of autonomy, and if um, there's any aspect of the theory that um, is it's sort of gotten to be labeled or known for, and it's one it shares with other theorists, it's that it's a, a historical conception of autonomy, Right, and so if I could talk about that for a minute, um, yeah, please. The s- standard conceptions of autonomy that in the literature, and there are several, um, although would uh, make a nod toward the past or how one got to an, uh, the position where one's making an autonomous choice or not, didn't thematize it. And um, the question of whether you're autonomous in any either just single decision or as a person was conceptualized in a way independent of how you got to where you are, both in where your values came from and where your desires and preferences were, how they were, you know, formulated. And many theorists, not, uh, you know, I wasn't the first one, started just thinking about that and giving counterexamples to that. I mean, in the sense of, you know, if some mad scientist had implanted all these ideas in your head and now you meet all the other conditions of current autonomy uh, right? that are set out by other people, we clearly wouldn't want to call you autonomous. Right. And so then we, uh, that motivated the idea that history, one's personal history, in some way has to play a role in the question of whether one is autonomous. Now here things get sort of subtle because you can say that history matters, but you have a choice to make as a theorist between whether you think objectively we can set out um, historical steps that are necessary for autonomous agency, or we can specify the historical steps necessary for autonomous agency from the agent's point of view. And I found the former problematic. That is, um, any external, um, what I'm now calling objective conceptualization of how agents come to be who they are is insensitive to the way in which we sometimes um, adopt uh, unorthodox and even self-constraining uh, processes of self-formation 
that would violate those objective conditions, but we do it, you know, for our own purposes. So we might subject ourselves to hypnosis to quit smoking. And during the process of that, we lose certain uh, aspects of control uh, over our development of our agency. And the objectivists I'm talking about might want to say that reflective control is necessary for this process. Right. And I just can think of so many examples where we suspend that for a time because it's part of something we need. It's part of a project. It's part of a plan. And I wanted to then um, uh, go pursue this alternative route to say whatever, however history matters, it has to be specified in a way sensitive to the current agent's point of view. So, it ha- so instead of saying you're autonomous, among other, uh, if, among other things, you have come to be the way you are um, in a certain way. I wanted to say you're autonomous if you're not, upon reflection, alienated from the way you've come to be. Right. Um, right? And so I have this subjectivist conception of the importance of personal history in my conception of autonomy. Now, some people think it's too subjectivist and there are worries there that I try to take care of. But, um, but that's a kind of philosophical decision I made and, and for the reasons I, I pointed out. So um, history matters, but it's history at least partially from the point of view of the current agent. And right. Yeah, go ahead. So can I just a- ask a, um, uh, a question about the, the non-alienation uh, mm-hmm. component? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, and maybe this is something that's, that some of the critics that you were just uh, mentioning uh, say. I'm not sure. Um, couldn't somebody say that um, – uh, someone might say, "Look, Chrisman thinks that what really counts in deciding whether you know Betty is a, a autonomous agent is if um, Chrisman thinks if on critical reflection about her plans and desires and projects and values, however we want to cash that out, mm-hmm. um, uh, Betty can uh, see the the historical source of uh, of these components of herself." Mm-hmm. Um, and not feel alienated uh, uh, by them. Um, could a critic say, well, but couldn't Betty's conception of what's alienating and not alienating be itself the product of some kind of very sinister manipulation uh, on the part of uh, uh, some past uh, dominator or oppressor? Well, um in some limited way, I want to say yes, and that shouldn't be a problem, but I'm going to spell out those okay. severe limitations <laughs> and qualifications. <laughs> um, so uh, the way I have uh, discussions of, of what I call authentic reflection. So what we're asking, in this case, Betty, to do is to re- reflect on her, the way she has come to be how she is and do so in a way – free of any uh, imposition uh, or pathology or other disruption of, of uh, reflective capacities. So she has to be able to reflect. And there's lots of things like hypnosis and you know, um, drugs and, and uh, also other uh, conditions that just undercut our, our capacity to, to just reflect without contradiction and um, self-deception and, and other things. So there's lots of conditions on the kind of reflections we're talking about. Um, and it has to do, and I also have a condition that it has to be reflection over a, a variety of conditions. So it has to be that she would reflectively accept this past 
now and she would do it tomorrow and she would do it if she were, you know, seated somewhere else. It can't just be that, you know, her her uh, cult leader, for example, is hovering over her and then she accepts the past because obviously that's a condition that's speci- specialized to that um, that sort of powered relationship. And we'd want to make her reflective acceptance of herself, as we would say, we might say settled, right? right? And so we have this sort of conditions of authentic reflection. We have it that it has to be a variety of conditions, so it's a settled reflective position she's in. Um, the other thing is to, is the way in which history matters, on my view, in a, in a, along a different but uh, parallel dimension, and that is that it is reflectively accepted, accepted by her as part of an ongoing um, practical narrative. Um, so it's not just something that she now says, I can accept this, but rather I can accept this as a way of going on, as a way of pursuing values and, and, uh, projects that I, that make sense to me. So it has to be, again, accepted as diachronically as an ongoing process. Now, all that said, that does leave room Oh, one more thing to say. When I talk about alienation, it is not just the weak feeling of uh, being uneasy with something. It's a fairly stringent requirement. One rejects this idea of oneself. One feels it as a constraint. One is motivated to to resist it. One is – it it undercuts one's ability to to kind of formulate more – to – have settled motivations. That's when one is alienated. It's it's a it's a pretty uh, dire condition. You don't want to, you know, be. This is not just mild unease. Right, right. So I wanted to add that. So so with all that, and this is something some critics are still bothered by. Um, I want to leave room for the possibility that people can accept, come to accept as part of their self understanding, uh, certain conditions of their past that from an external point of view, we might think of as limitations. Now, we can critique as from that external point of view the way in which that person has been victimized. We can, pro- we can point to it and say, that's too bad that you've now come to be the person you are because of, say, um, that, uh, that experience in that religious cult. Because maybe uh, we think it's unfair that people were subjected to that. But what I don't want us to be able to do, if all these other, what I think are very stringent conditions are met, to say that Betty, in this case, is not an agent anymore. And the reason I want to leave room for that is because when, it's, when such cases are ruled out, and there are uh, conceptions of autonomy that are sometimes called substantive conceptions, which say that there are certain ways of being which, by their nature, by their substance, undercut autonomy uh, independent of how the person's come to accept it. Right. Um, mine is a proceduralist conception. And when people try to specify that and they say there are certain ways of life which undercut autonomy, the problem I have with that is that, and I talk about some things like this in the book, we can imagine individuals who meet those, who, who uh, can be described that way, who we can no longer, on the basis of those alternative uh, models, count as an autonomous agent. And that has dire consequences for, I think, our politics. Because insofar as our politics includes all and only autonomous agents who are not either children or not um, impaired, uh, you know, in some severe way or then if, and, and we are saying such people with such commitments do not 
are not welcome in our politics because they don't meet our con- substantive conditions of autonomy, then we, I think, have problematically limited the arena of, for example, collective deliberation that our politics might demand. And I find that very problematic uh, in its implications. So I'm trying to be very careful in holding on to a proceduralist account, a content invariant. It's usually called content neutral, but I realize right. it's not completely neutral. It's content, widely content invariant proceduralist conception of autonomy, knowing that it will be open to certain kinds of what people would call counterexamples, but I want to kind of bite the bullet on some of on them in, by saying there are certain ways of life which are, to an external and maybe liberal perspective, in a broad sense of liberal, look enslaved or look you know, overly um, authoritarian. Yet I want to say, if we want to critique that as overly authoritarian, we can't do it in a way that undercuts the agency of the person in question. Right. So let me just press um, from a slightly different direction on on this uh, alienation condition. Um, Mm -hmm. What you just said was very compelling. But there is a kind of case, and I I think you even raise it sort of in the middle of the book where you're talking about the the kind of case where um, I believe it's a a person who... um, has uh, a, some kind of uh, abuse in in his or her past, but that abuse or that abuser is also connected to um, uh, a long uh, term of very successful piano lessons or right. something. So that um, so one of the and and as I was reading the book, I'd sort of had these kinds of cases in mind, which uh, one might sort of think of them more broadly as sort of survivor kinds of uh, attitudes, where one sees in one's own history something that one would regard as abusive or manipulative or oppressive and therefore one feels even in this uh, uh, more more strict sense that, that you were laying out not just the you know the the attitude that 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 element of the past was yucky but also mm-hmm. actually feels alienated from or resentful and all the other things that might go into alienation mm-hmm. from that bit but then there's also the reflection on that part of the past as the causal occasion or the mechanism by which some virtue was developed, right? right? Or right. something that one embraces in oneself, some kind of resilience or ability to endure and survive. I mean, sometimes Stoics have this sort mm-hmm. of uh, uh, element uh, in their view. Um, so that looks as if it, it's possible to um, have this sort of two-pronged set or double-pronged kind of attitude towards something. You could feel alienated by it, but then almost in a Nietzschean way, say, well, it's mm-hmm. the thing that made me stronger, the thing that made mm-hmm. me who I am, and I wouldn't want to change that, even though uh, I feel alienated and uh, have all of the the, 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 uh, the attitudes that you're describing as mm-hmm. sort of autonomy defeating. So can you, I know that you sort of raise this kind of case and say that it gives you a pause and then mm-hmm. you, you take a swing at it. Um, have you had any uh, – this seems to me a very fascinating kind of uh, phenomenon uh, and, right. and not that um, uncommon, I should no. say. Right. Um, so have you, can you speak a little bit about this, case, this kind mm-hmm. of case and how you might uh, address it? Yeah, and um, it has several features, and so I, I want to kind of touch on, on, on some, of the, some of them. Um, the main thrust of your question is, I gather, that um, we can imagine – and in fact observe cases where a person has a certain attitude toward how they got to be where they are, yet a different attitude on where they are. In other words, they are alienated from the process but accept 
the result of that process. Now, one thing I'll say about that is that I changed the formulation of my view from articles I wrote some time ago before the book uh, in in response to criticism, in particular by Al Mealy and um, some others, from, from saying that in order to be autonomous, one cannot be alienated from the process. That's what I said earlier. Right. To what I say now is one cannot be autonomous if one is alienated from one's current commitments in light of the process. Ah. So insofar as the bifurcation you described occurs, if the person can accept their current situation, even given how they got there, they're autonomous. Um, because and, – and, and I'll, I want to give a couple of reasons for that, um, both just uh, I think intuitively uh, people can overcome – uh, crisis and overcome abuse and, and other kinds of um, things that happen to them. Um, but also, I think that um, we want to be able to tell the difference between two kinds of cases. Um, imagine uh, two people who have suffered uh, a tremendous either crisis or, or accident, say a debilitating accident. Both of them now, they had been ambulatory and now they're, uh, say, quadriplegic. And in the first case, the person is so undercut. In both cases, they are completely altered and they're completely changed in the, their outlook. Let's say they were both physically active and imagined themselves always exercising in an ambulatory way. Right. They have to completely change that and all that's changed. In the first case, the person can never really reconstruct some projects that don't involve walking and remains sort of depressed and, and uh, sort of victimized by, by the accident. In the second case, the person, and we probably know people like this, um, have in some ways, despite their always regretful attitude toward the way, what happened to them, been able to reconstruct them projects and also their own self-understanding uh, in a way that is pursued uh, allows them to pursue uh, a certain kind of flourishing. The difference between those two cases are not the difference between how they got there and not even the difference in their attitudes or how, toward how they got there. Both of those are fundamentally alienating and, and negative. But in the second case, and I want to allow us to call that second kind of person autonomous, mm-hmm. that person has in some way accepted or at least begrudgingly taken on their uh, past and the process by which they are where they are and formulated into a, a meaningful ongoing value trajectory that they can then get behind. And there is a stoic element to this. I mean, I'm not right. wholesale with the stoics that we just accept our, what nature gives to us and, and you know, expunge all desires which are unmeetable. But, um, but I do think um, – and, and I, I sort of – in a minority here in the literature, but I, I'm really um, adamant about this, that we always want to re- leave room for the way in which people are adapting to circumstances. Um, the, the idea of the happy or contented slave is sometimes thrown out as this obvious counterexample. Well, if, on your view, if a person's a slave, then you know, they could in principle be autonomous. So end of story. Well, I think we are always reconstructing ourselves in light of things we didn't choose. And sometimes and often in light of severe disruptions in what we had chosen earlier and what we had thought of ourselves earlier. And so the uh, alienation condition has to be about how our life is going now in light of how we got there. And that was a kind of, that was just, that example was a reason for to support that. 
Right, right. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so let me, if, if, if I may move on um, to the more political stuff that comes up uh, towards the end of the book. I know that we're, we're taking up a lot of your time. So uh, I want to make sure that we uh, get a chance to discuss, um, uh, again, one of the, the sort of novel components of the view as I, uh, as I take it, that um, from the very beginning of the book and then it gets developed uh, in some detail at the end, uh, you're explicit in that you're, you, you want to develop an autonomy-based conception of democratic politics. And in particular, you want to promote or you, you do promote a, um, a conception of democratic legitimacy mm-hmm. that, is, uh, that has autonomy at its center. Can you, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that part of the, of the view? Um, yeah. Um, um, in coming back to uh, the theory of autonomy, um, I... Uh, I use non-alienation as the condition of sort of self-acceptance in the, indivi- in the model of individual autonomy. Mm-hmm. And that's to be contrasted with uh, sort of wholesale identification with aspects of oneself or in the old model of the liberal chooser we've rejected, the idea that we have chosen ourselves. Now, I want to re- kind of reiterate that because at the conditions of, of legitimacy ha- – has always and discussions about those conditions have always um, in large part assumed that for political structures and, and uh, centers of authority to be legitimate, they have to be subject to the approval slash acceptance slash choice of those living under them. And those alternatives that I just listed speak to the various alternatives that you know, we can find in the literature. In fact, if we look at Rawls, he kind of vacillates between whether right. he thinks the overlapping consensus is merely acceptance or um, uh, somehow um, um, celebration, right? Idealize, idealizing from one's own comprehensive Right, and sometimes it's just acceptability, that it That's could right. be accepted, right? That's right, acceptability. Yeah. Right. I want to kind of take the insight there uh, of that last formulation and uh, say that legitimacy, I want to weaken the conditions of legitimacy in the same way I tried to weaken the conditions of individual autonomy, that it's a kind of critical acceptance that's required for legitimacy at the social level. Now, what's required for that is a model uh, of, of collective deliberation in, through representatives and secondary associations, various things, that allow, if, allow citizens and citizen groups to object if they are alienated, if they resist. So it's subject to critical objection, but that's a weaker condition um, than saying must be the product of collective choice. Right. Because again, in keeping with this theme, there are many aspects of what I think are acceptable democratic processes which would, cannot be described as the product of collective choice. Um, my view is very influenced by Rousseau and Rousseauian deliberative democracy has sometimes been caricatured uh, and, and sort of lampooned as only applicable to very small states where everybody knows each other and where we can all get together and, and choose what or you know produce our general will in face-to-face contact. We all know that that's impossible and if you know the model implies that it should be rejected. I want to allow this autonomy-based conception of legitimacy to do the work that we want deliberative democratic uh, processes to do by weakening the condition of legitimacy so it's sort of this critical acceptance which is required. And I think this um, uh, is has a lot in common with with other 
theories in other settings um, in uh, that that avenues toward allowing citizens to have avenues of critique is what is required for legitimacy. I won't go through this, we don't have time, but, um, okay. but I'll just point to it. Um, in Philip Pettit's Republican conception of freedom, there's an element of, of um, legitimacy which is required where it is answerability that's required uh, for right. processes to be legitimate uh, to protect the freedom of the uh, citizens. And, and there's a parallel idea here in my view that it's, it's a kind of sim- – Subject to critique, but not a product of choice that is required for legitimacy. And I think that protects the view um, against some criticisms that have been made against Rawls' view of overlapping consensus and some other things. Uh, um, so so that's, that's the meat of that, that particular view. Well, excellent. At one point, um, though, I, I take it that you, you – you, um, I just have in my notes here on 239, um, page 239, that uh, – Sort of the the view that seems to fall that the legitimacy is a matter of the absence of um, what you call understandable alienation. Yeah, <laughs> that right. is that something like, you know, if 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 the principle is something that somebody couldn't, uh, you know, we're tempted here to use Rawls speak and say reasonably reject, right. but it's something slightly different, right? It's sort of something that they could not understandably be alienated from. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's uh, legitimacy. Um, well, this has all been. Uh, uh, very, very uh, helpful and, and fascinating. Um, so thank you for talking to us about the politics uh, of persons. Thank you. Um, so let me just ask my usual final question. Uh, what's next for John Christman? Well, um, uh, I have moved on. This is going to sound uh, <laughs> not to – I've moved from autonomy to freedom. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and which is not a very long journey. Um, I'm, I'm working much more on uh, conceptions of freedom but also in uh, more forthrightly in the, um, from the position of what we were talking about earlier as non-ideal theory. Um, and I'm trying to rethink – Various con- both conceptions of freedom, positive freedom and negative freedom, and and the debates that have uh, emerged out of around those concepts, but from a point of view um, of either the people or their social position of those who are uh, without freedom, right? right? Who are by all accounts enslaved, and I'm trying to look at contemporary patterns of of so-called enslavement, like in human trafficking, as well as historical settings. And and just it's sort of experimental at this point and, and kind of rethink the debates of the nature of freedom, but saying what is it what is this idea when we're looking at it from the point of view of those struggling to gain it rather than the point of view of those who already have it and are trying to protect it. And the it in those two phrases I think are is slightly different. I think the freedom one is aspiring to or doesn't have is different from the freedom the privileged among us already has and wants political structures to protect. So that's the current uh, long-term project. Well, that sounds very interesting, and um, I will uh, look forward to hearing more about this and seeing more about it in the journals and hopefully a book uh, at some point in the future. And um, if there is a book that comes out of this, maybe we'll talk again Mm. on new books in philosophy. But uh, once again, thank you, John Crispin, for talking to us uh, about the politics of persons, Mm. um, and thanks for your time. Well, thanks very much for having me. It was a real pleasure talking to you, Bob. Well, thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor John Chrisman of Penn State University. We've been talking about his book, The Politics of Persons, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. 
This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.